Thank you so much. A lot of victory we have in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. His precious blood cleanses from all sin. He is a Savior that changes to the uttermost all who come to Him. Someone as well said, He not only saves to the uttermost, He saves some people from the guttermost. And I want you to look at Luke chapter 8. There was ever a man where you might say that sense was in the gutter, this man. But isn't that where Jesus finds all of us? Absolutely. And makes us trophies of his grace. Let's turn to our passage that we read earlier, Luke chapter 8. As you turn to Luke 8, you're going to see that the disciples are learning an important truth. The disciples are learning about being disciples. (laughs) Being a disciple means this. Jesus leads and the disciples follow. That's the way it works. Jesus leads and the disciples follow. And these disciples are also learning that following Jesus often means taking the road less traveled. And following Jesus also often means taking the road less desired. But when you're following Jesus, whatever road he has you on, it's always the road most needed, right? Because he knows just what we need. Now, these disciples are being led by Jesus, but they're being led to places they would not have chosen. But they're being led to places that it was necessary for them to go. And that is the life of being a disciple. The Lord leads us to places that we would never choose to go but it's really where we need to go. And we find out, don't we, that it's often following Jesus where we never would have wanted to go that we learn more about Him than ever before and we experience Him more deeply than ever before. You see, following Jesus is not always knowing where he is leading. But it's following Jesus that we know who is leading. It's not about liking where he is leading. It's following him. And why do we follow Jesus when he leads us places we don't want to go? Because he's worth it. (laughs) We follow Jesus because it's Jesus we get to follow. Now, what do we know here? What do we know about the journey that every disciple has with Jesus? Because of all the different pathways he takes us individually, being a disciple of Jesus has two main purposes. Let's not forget them. The first purpose is to learn about our master, to learn about our master. A disciple is a learner. And it's not just learning things, it's learning about him. 
We're learning from him, but we're learning about him. Why? So that we can share about the master. We're learning about the master so that we can share with others about the master. You remember when Jesus chose those 12 disciples. It says in Mark chapter 3 verse 14 that he chose his disciples for two purposes. And this is the reason he has chosen everyone who is his disciple. For these two purposes. Number one, that they might be with him. He chose them that they might be with him and then that he might send them out to preach or to proclaim the good news of the king. That is what the Lord has as a purpose for every disciple, to know him, to be with him and to know him. And then by being with him and knowing him, we go about our lives making him known. That's what it means to be a disciple. Now sometimes on this journey, when Jesus is leading us, he leads us into some dark places. Dark places. And he leads us there into dark places because he wants to bring his light into our heart. Even in the darkness, he wants to bring his light into our heart. And he wants to also bring his light into the lives of others. So the Lord leads us into dark places so that we might know that he is the king over the darkness. If you don't learn anything else from this passage, you read this passage we've read this morning, something's very clear. Jesus is king over the darkness. He's the king over all darkness. He's the king of light. Now, what a day these disciples have had. If you read just a few verses before we read this passage and where we were last week in our time of going through Luke, you'll see that the Lord led them where they wouldn't have wanted to go. They didn't even know they were going there, but they wouldn't have wanted to go. He led them on a journey through the crashing of the waves. Verses 22 to 25, we see where he led them in his will right into the midst of a storm. He led them into the storm because the storm is where they needed to be. They needed this storm. Even though they would never wanted to experience this storm, they needed this storm to learn that Jesus is the king of physical, all physical creation. Jesus, in the midst of that howling tempest, stood up, <laughs> awakened from his nap, and he said to the most fierce storm perhaps that region had ever seen, Hush! <laughs> and it was completely calm. And the disciples who were so overwhelmed with fear about the storm outside the boat, now they are overwhelmed with awestruck fear over the one who's in the boat with them. That the one with them is the one who is the master of the wind and the waves. He is the Lord of physical creation. 
And now the day continues and the journey continues because Jesus is leading these disciples not only through the crashing waves, he's leading them on a journey this day also to the clashing of cultures. He's leading them to the clash of cultures. Now listen again, Jesus is taking them where they need to go. He's taking them where they need to go, but now they know where they're going and not one of these disciples would want to go there. Not one. Why? Verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. Now that seems very harmless to us. It just sounds like Jesus gotten his disciples on the boat. They had a bad storm. Jesus calmed the storm. And now they've drifted into a place of the Gerasenes. That's not the case. Jesus led to them this place. And it is not the place they would have wanted to go. Jesus has taken his disciples... Many places already they did not want to go. Remember, he took them into an encounter with a leper. That's not something that was in their plan for their life. He took them to a tax collector convention. Remember that? Oh, they had always wanted to go to one of those. <laughs> he took them to a Roman centurion's house. That was off limits. Then he took them to a party in a Pharisee's house and a former prostitute massaging Jesus' feet. Now things have been better lately. Yeah, they've been better. Look back at verse 1. They're on their, their mission. Jesus is now going to the cities and the towns. This is their region. And they've got a gospel mission. And there's a team. And people are hearing the good news of the kingdom. It's wonderful. It's, all, it's awesome. Huge crowds are gathering. These are their people. The kingdom is coming to their people. But not this, not the, not the village of Gerasa, not the area of Gadara, not the region of Decapolis. Wait one minute, Jesus, not here. You need to understand every single disciple in that boat was thinking that. Why? They did not want to go there for the same reason the prophet Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. <laughs> he ran the other way, tried to get away from God's call, and God sent him a whalogram <laughs> to make sure he ended up where he wanted him to be. He didn't want to go to Nineveh. Why did not... Jonah, the prophet of God, wanted to go to Nineveh because he was struggling with racism. He was struggling 
with hatred for a people not like his own, a people who had even persecuted his people. They deserved God's judgment. They deserved punishment. Not the message of hope. You see, this country of the Gerasenes is a part of a bigger area. It was called Decapolis, which means the Ten Cities. The Ten Cities. There were ten cities with beginning from Philadelphia, a city down near the Dead Sea, all the way up to Damascus in modern-day Syria. These were cities in what was known as the Transjordan, across the Jordan, but still within the Promised Land that God had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the descendants. The city and the cities of Decapolis, the region of Decapolis, was the homeland of the ancient Moabites and the Ammonites, ancient enemies of God's covenant people. And then after that, it was resettled by refugees. Refugees had been settled there by the Babylonians. They brought people in from all kinds of nations and populated the promised land with these people. And then Alexander the Great came in a couple of centuries after that and he brought this pagan, godless culture with all of its ways foreign to the Jewish people. They had had a wonderful revolt under their leaders, the Maccabees. And for about a hundred years, they had won back this territory. But then the Romans came. And they were conquered by the general Pompey in 63 B.C. And these people, this region, the Decapolis, this area, they cooperated with the Romans. The Romans protected them. The Romans filled these cities with aliens. These cities were funded by oppression of the Romans. These cities were funded by Jewish tax dollars. And then this area around Gerasa was Gadara, Gadara, we hear about that. It's a larger area around this village and it is noted for cult worship. Jesus is taking them to a region which is noted for cult worship and pagan temples are everywhere. And then Jesus is taking them not just to the region of Decapolis, not just to the area of Gadara, he's taking them to the village of Gerasa, which is right on their lake. It's right on their lake. It's populated by Gentiles with their pagan ways. And it is a hub of a pork industry. To feed the Gentiles that live all over the region. Raising thousands and thousands of pigs on the Holy Land. And if that weren't enough, these people 
carved out tombs for their dead in the hillside around their village looking down on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus was taking these disciples to a place that was rightfully theirs. It was rightfully the Jewish people's, but it was ruled by oppressors. It was overrun with refugees and immigrants. It was filled with foreign nations, foreign ways, foreign and false gods. That is what these disciples had been taught all their lives, and that's what they thought. But you see now, they're disciples. And what does a disciple mean? You remember? A learner. And who does a disciple learn from? The master. And isn't it amazing, Jesus doesn't quite see it the way they see it. Jesus uh, is not going along quite with the communication filling the cities and the villages of Galilee. They've got to learn something from their master about being a disciple. You know, and I'm just wondering today, maybe we have some things to learn as well along this line. You see... One thing they had to learn, listen church, one thing these disciples had to learn, if they were going to be on mission with Jesus, and when he was gone, if they were going to be on mission for Jesus, they had to learn that Jesus' mission was not about preserving their culture. Jesus was not about preserving their culture, he was about expanding his kingdom. That's what he's about. Expanding the kingdom of God, not preserving any culture of man. Now I'm going to stop there. And I want to tell you, I am not reading into this text. If there's something I really do not like, it's a preacher who has something to say and he finds a place to say it finally. No. I'm not reading into this text. This is the canvas of the text. You look it up. You read it. You see these experiences had a context around them. There was a culture they didn't happen in a vacuum. And a lot of times, it's a lot more like ours than we would think. Do we recognize, even so far, do we recognize what the Lord might be showing us? Cultures change. The kingdom doesn't. Cultures change. The kingdom doesn't. The kingdom is in the culture. But the kingdom is not the culture. Jesus said you are in the world, but you are not of the world. 
We are to be people in the culture, but the culture is not the kingdom. The kingdom that rules in our hearts and unites us in Christ is in the culture. We must understand this. Cultures change. Cultures come and go. But the kingdom of Jesus lasts forever. We must understand this now. We must understand this here. And I want you this morning to recognize we must understand it now and here in America. For decades and decades... The majority culture of America has been the white European ethnicity. Majority culture. But today, 40% of the population of the United States is non-white and not of European ethnic background. The 2020 census is expected to reflect this about America. That 12 states of the 50 will no longer have white, European background, ethnicity as the majority of the population. Five states, whites are already the minority. New Mexico, California, Hawaii, Texas, Nevada. The 2020 census is expected to reveal or in the very near future to see that in these states, Maryland, Georgia, Florida, Arizona, New York, New Jersey, Mississippi, Louisiana, the non-white portion of the population will be the majority. In this year, 2020, the majority of births in the United States of America are births of non-white European ethnicity. The fastest growing segment, the fastest growing segment of the American population right now is the biracial and multiracial population. With current trends, it's estimated between the years 2040, 20 years from now, and 2025, in that period of time, the white population will become the minority population of the United States. Now, how do you feel about that? You know what's more important, what you feel about that? What's Jesus feel about it? Well, let me tell you what Jesus feels about that. I think he knows about it. Well, first of all, flash, Jesus was Jewish. That means Jesus was not white. And he wasn't even European. Jesus.
Now, Jesus was Jewish. He was Jewish by birth. He was Jewish by ethnicity. He was Jewish by culture. He was Jewish by religion. Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. But he was also the Savior of the world. Of all people groups. Who he made of one blood. And he would save with one blood his own. That's what Jesus thought. So Jesus' mission is not about preserving a culture. Jesus' mission is about expanding his kingdom, saving souls, and setting people free. All people. And he wants his disciples to be the ones to take that message and live it out in word and in deed and in heart. So Jesus brought his disciples to this clash of cultures. Why did he bring them to this clash of cultures? Because they needed it. But he also brought them because in this clash of cultures, there was the real clash that mattered that they needed to understand. And that was the clash of kingdoms. The clash of kingdoms. Jesus led them <laughs> to a showdown. He led them to the showdown. It's not the okay corral. It's right outside Jerasa. Jesus facing thousands of demons. That's quite a clash. Here's the confrontation. Notice the confrontation. Jesus gets out of the boat. Verse 27. When Jesus stepped out on the land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes. He had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. Can you imagine seeing this man run at you if you're in the boat? And as soon as Jesus gets out, this is the welcoming committee. And you hear him saying, I knew we shouldn't come. I knew we shouldn't come. <laughs> Bonds couldn't hold this man. He was able to break shackles. He lived among the dead bodies. He howled. He raged. He's the epitome of a lost soul controlled by all the evil power of darkness. He's just a mass of crying and anger and scars. He's howling. He's demonized. Possessed by fallen spirits, fallen angelic spirits that have taken hold of him. We don't know his background. We don't know anything about how he got in this situation. But now he is filled with so many demons that when the, finally the demon speaks with one voice for all of them, Jesus says, watch your name. He says, legion. Why did he say legion? We are many. You know, what, you know how many is in a Roman legion? 6,000. 
They, thousands of demons perhaps, were terrified by Jesus. They knew the master of heaven and earth. They knew this Son of the Most High. They confessed Him. You Son of the Most High God. And they begged Him not to throw them into the abyss. The abyss. What's the abyss? It's the bottomless pit as it's called. It's, it's a place of utter darkness. And we're told in Second Peter and also in Jude that it's the place where many fallen spirits are kept in chains awaiting the day of judgment when they will be dragged before Jesus Christ and consigned to the lake of fire. That's the abyss. And they're terrified of being sent there. Verse 32, they beg not to be cast into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. They begged him to let them enter these. And so he gave them permission. Now here we see the victory. There's the confrontation. Now here's coming the victory. These demons desire to possess some living thing. If it cannot be an image bearer of God, a human being, some living thing. So they beg even to enter the swine. We're told in other accounts there's about 2,000 of them. And Jesus permitted it. We're not told all the Lord was thinking and doing that. We, we don't understand exactly what was on his mind. Perhaps this was a way of bringing some judgment on what was being done in that region, defiling the holy land of God that his father had given to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, defiling it with these pigs. But Jesus, for whatever reason, permitted them Demons were so terrible. Thousands of pigs stampeded over the cliffs, drowned. I've seen these cliffs. I've seen the tombs. Among some of those tombs where this man dwelt 2,000 years ago. Here you see the king's authority. But friend, now stop right here. That's not where you see the power of Jesus great, most greatly displayed. It's not that he could cast out demons. Certainly he can because he is the master of all. But what did he do with his great power? He brought liberation. He brought emancipation. Verse 35, he made this man, this demon-possessed man, raging, infuriated, fearful man into a peaceful child of God. Verse 35, the people went out to see what happened. They came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus. 
It's the same man, but he's not the same man. He's clothed. He's sitting at Jesus' feet. He's in his right mind. Oh, friend, there is the perfect picture of an image bearer. Someone who truly knows the Lord sitting joyfully, humbly at his feet, listening to him, gazing upon him, no doubt clinging to him. Adoring the one who set him free. He's not naked now. He's clothed. He's clothed in righteousness. And he's clothed with dignity and value. And he's in his right mind. The raging thoughts have ended. That tempest out on the sea was nothing compared to the tempest in this man's mind and soul. And Jesus brought peace. Jesus is the great liberator. He sets people free. He's not the oppressor. He's the liberator. But not everybody celebrates. Because you see, in the spite of this miracle of peace, there were the, the rejectors of it. Even though it was very clear, they rejected. Verse 36, why would they reject it? And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people, the surrounding country of the garrisons, begged him to depart from them. They were seized with great fear. So he got in the boat and he returned. What a commentary. What a commentary on the souls of people. What a commentary on what a worldly value system can do in people's hearts where they value money more than a man. They value pigs and pork your economy more than a person. This isn't good for business. This religion in the synagogue's one thing. This going and gathering and being together and quietly affirming your face, one thing. But now bringing this out into the streets, bringing this out here where people are actually being changed, where people are not controlled any longer, but they are free, and now they are following Jesus. Oh, whoa, whoa, this is not good for society. Uh, this didn't go along with the power structure. What a tragedy. You know what's so tragic? Jesus would do for all of them what he did for this man. This man is not a unique expression of the power of Jesus. He'll do this for anybody. But they don't want him. They, don't, they, they would rather have their life the way it was. Life. That is so purposeless and so void of true priorities. 
They didn't want Jesus changing things. It would have been something if Jesus had just come and given some you know, nice teaching, if he'd just come and given you know, some nice thoughts, uh, you know, a little refinement. But no, 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 no. If this gets loose, this changes everything. They, they didn't mind having God, but they wanted God in a box. God doesn't stay in a box. They wouldn't have him. They begged to be left alone, and guess what? They didn't want Jesus. They'd ask him to leave, and you know what he did? He left. And he never returned. Ponder that. They said, no, Jesus. I don't want you now. No, not now. So he left. Left them alone. Left them to the life that they wanted. Unspeakable tragedy. Jesus left, but guess what? He left someone. <laughs> oh, he left someone. He left this man who is now a proclaimer. He's a proclaimer. Look at verse 38. <laughs> the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. He begged that he could go with Jesus and stay with Jesus, but Jesus sent him away. That word sent him away, we get the same word apostle from that. He, he's sending him away on a, an, a mission. He's sending him out with something to do. He's returning him to whom? His home? Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. Think about it. He was a maniac in the morning and he's a missionary in the evening. How many years of Bible college did he have? How many seminary degrees? How many Bible studies had he been involved in? How much did he know about the Old Testament prophecies? But he knew Jesus. He knew that he was lost, but he'd been found. That he was blind, he was seeing. That he now see, he was shackled, and now he was free. He was raging, now he was at peace. And he went and told his people. Where did his witness begin? At home. At home. His family, his neighbors. He just told them what Jesus had done for him. And then he's going everywhere. All that Jesus had done for him. One man, he's now a changed man. And now guess what? He's got his journey that Jesus has given to him. Now here's the rest of the story. I told you what happened before to make this context. I told you how the culture was so far from God but now let me tell you the rest of the story. This man is on a journey for Jesus, and it's a journey that's going to change a culture. Because if you read in Mark chapter 7, Jesus did not come back to this village, but he came back to this area. And when he came back the next time, people are flooding toward him, begging him to stay. 
and begging him to heal folks. I wonder where they got that idea. It became this region of Decapolis became one of the earliest Christian communities. As a matter of fact, 40 years, less than 40 years from this date, when Jerusalem is being destroyed in 70 AD, guess where the believers in Jerusalem flee for safety? They flee to their brothers and sisters in Decapolis. This region where this man is from became the center of the Christian faith in the entire Middle East for the next 500 years. And it started with one person set free. My friends, that's how you change a culture. One person at a time who knows the loving power of Jesus telling others about Jesus and before you know it, there are gatherings of Jesus followers and their lives are changed and they're different fathers and they're different mothers and they're different kinds of businessmen than we were before and they're different kinds of judges and they're different kinds of teachers. They're different kinds of employees. Why? Because the kingdom has come. Because the kingdom's in their heart. It comes from within. And it starts with one soul. How do you expect to change a culture? How do you expect to be a part of changing a culture? My friend, it'll never, ever, ever, ever happen in a political change. Because the problem's not political. The problem is sin. And there's a hope for sin. It is a savior. And when people are born again, they're changed all over. And so my friend, where should your focus be in our culture? On you being with Jesus. In you walking with Jesus. And in you telling others about your Jesus. That's the mission. Will it change our culture? I don't know. Jesus isn't interested in preserving a culture. He's interested in expanding his kingdom. And it happens one person at a time. How do you reach the world? You reach one. That's how you change the world. Lord, I ask you now, as we come, prepare our hearts for this moment. I thank you for these dear people. I thank you for your spirit with us. And we have sung to you, oh, the blood of Jesus that washes white as snow. Power of the blood, the beauty and glory of the, what you do through your sacrifice, Lord Jesus. The peace that you bring. Oh, God, we praise you for this. And I ask now that, Lord Jesus, you will come and set captives free.
Lord Jesus, I pray that very, very distressed people, depressed people, distracted people, not even knowing what to do, would run to Jesus. All that come to Him, He never casts out. Oh Lord, bring Your peace in the raging hearts this morning. And oh Lord Jesus, give us courage. Give us courage, Lord, as we leave. Oh Lord, may we be instruments of Your peace. May it begin in our own hearts. May we spread it in our homes, in our our neighborhoods. May we share the word of peace with our loved ones and those that come our way. Oh, Lord, make us instruments of your peace. In Jesus' name.